Volume Two, Chapter Six of the Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Seaboard Parish by George MacDonald. Chapter Six: The Shadow of Death. When Winnie appeared at dinner, she looked ashamed of herself, and her face betrayed that she had been crying. But I said nothing, for I had confidence that all she needed was time to come to herself, that the voice that speaks louder than any thunder might make its stillness heard. And when I came home from my walk the next morning, I found Mr. Percival once more in the group about Connie, and evidently on the best possible terms with all. The same afternoon, when he went out sketching with Dora, I had no doubt that she had made some sort of apology to Mr. Percival, but I did not make the slightest attempt to discover what had passed between them, for though it is of all things desirable that children should be quite open with their parents, I was most anxious to lay upon them no burden of obligation, for such burden lies against the door of utterance and makes it more difficult to open. It paralyzes the speech of the soul. What I desired was that they should trust me so that faith should overcome all difficulty that might lie in the way of their being open with me. That end is not to be gained by any urging of admonition. Against such growing years at least, if nothing else, will bring a strong reaction nor even, if so gained, would be the gain be at all of the right sort. The openness would not be faith. Besides, a parent must respect the spiritual person of his child and approach it with reverence, for that too looks the father in the face and has an audience with him into which no earthly parent could ever enter, even if he dared to desire it. Therefore I trusted my child, and when I saw that she looked at me a little shyly when we next met, I only sought to show her the more tenderness and confidence, telling her all about my plans with the bells, and my talks with the smith and Mrs. Combs. She listened with just such interest as I had always been accustomed to see in her, asking such questions and making such remarks as I might have expected but I still felt that there was the thread of a little uneasiness through the web of our intercourse. Such a thread of a false color as one may sometimes find wandering through the labor of the room, and seek with pains to draw from the woven stuff. But it was for Winnie to take it out, not for me, and she did not leave it long, for as she bade me good night in my study, she said suddenly, yet with hesitating openness. Papa, I told Mr. Percival that I was sorry I had behaved so badly about the drawings. You did right, my child, I replied. At the same moment a pang of anxiety passed through me lest, under the influence of her repentance, she should have said anything more than becoming. But I banished the thought instantly as faithfulness in the womanly instinct of my child. For we men are always so ready and anxious to keep women right, like the wretched creature, Laertes, in Hamlet, 
who reads his sister such a lesson on her maidenly duties but declines almost with contempt to listen to a word from her as to any correlative obligation on his side and here i may remark in regard to one of the vexed questions of the day the rights of women that what women demand is not for men to withhold it is not their business to lay the law for women that women must lay down for themselves i confess that although i must herein seem to many of my readers old-fashioned and conservative i should not like to see any woman i care much for either in parliament or in the anatomical classroom but on the other hand i feel that women must be left free to settle that matter if it is not good good women will find it out and recoil from it if it is good then god give them good speed one thing they have a right to a far wider and more valuable education than they have been in the way of receiving when mothers are well taught the generations will grow in knowledge at a fourfold rate but still the teaching of life is better than all the schools and common sense than all the learning this common sense is a rare gift scantier in none than in those who lay claim to it on the ground of following commonplace worldly and prudential maxims but i must return to my winnie and what did mr percival say i resumed for she was silent he took the blame all on himself papa like a gentleman i said but i could not leave it so you know papa because that was not the truth well i told him that i had lost my temper from disappointment that i had thought i did not care for my drawings because i was so far from satisfied with them but when he made me feel that they were worth nothing then i found from the vexation i felt that i had cared for them but i do think papa i was more ashamed of having shown them and vexed with myself than cross with him but i was very silly well and what did he say he began to praise them then but you know i could not take much of that for what could he do you might give him credit for a little honesty at least yes but things may be true in a way you know and not mean much he seems to have succeeded in reconciling you to the prosecution of your efforts however for i saw you go out with your sketching apparatus this afternoon yes she answered shyly he was so kind that somehow i got heart to try again he's very nice isn't he my answer was not quite ready don't you like him papa well i like him yes but we must not be in haste with our judgments you know i have had very little opportunity of seeing into him there is much in him that i like but but what P please papa to tell the truth then winnie for i can speak my mind to you my child there is certain shyness of approaching the subject of religion so that i have fears lest he should belong to any of these new schools of a fragmentary philosophy which acknowledge no source of truth 
but the testimony of the senses and the deductions made therefrom by the intellect but is that not a hasty conclusion papa that is a hasty question my dear i have come to no conclusion i was only speaking confidentially about my fears perhaps papa it's only that he is not sure enough and is afraid of appearing to profess more than he believes i'm sure if that's it i have the greatest sympathy with him i looked at her and saw the tears gathering fast in her eyes pray to god on the chance of his hearing you my darling and go to sleep i said i will not think hardly of you because you cannot be so sure as i am how could you be you have not had my experience perhaps you are right about mr percival too but it would be an awkward thing to get intimate with him you know and then find out that we did not like him after all you couldn't like a man much could you who did not believe in anything greater than himself anything marvellous grand beyond our understanding who thought that he had come out of the dirt and was going back to the dirt i could papa if he tried to do his duty notwithstanding for i am sure i couldn't i should cry myself to death you are right my child i should honour him too but i should be very sorry for him for he would be so disappointed in himself i do not know whether this was the best answer to make but i had little time to think but you don't know that he's like that i do not my dear and more i will not associate the idea with him till i know for certain we will leave it to the ignorant old ladies who lay claim to an instinct for theology to jump at conclusions and reserve ours as even such a man as we have been supposing might well teach us till we have sufficient facts from which to draw them now go to bed my child good night then dear papa she said and left me with a kiss i was not altogether comfortable after this conversation i had tried to be fair to the young man both in word and thought but i could not relish the idea of my daughter falling in love with him which looked likely enough before i knew more about him and found that more good and hope-giving there was but one rational thing left to do and that was to cast my care on him that careth for us on the father who loved my child more than even i could love her and loved the young man too and regarded my anxiety and would take its cause upon himself after i had lifted up my heart to him i was at ease read a canto of dante's paradise and then went to bed the prematurity of a conversation with my wife in which i found that she was very favourably impressed with mr percival must be pardoned to the forecasting hearts of fathers and mothers as i went out for my walk the next morning i caught sight of the sexton with whom as yet i had had but little communication busily trimming some of the newer graves in the churchyard i turned in through the nearer gate which was fashioned like a lich-gate with seats on the sides and a stone table in the centre but had no roof 
The one on the other side of the church was roofed, but probably they had found that here no roof could resist the sea blasts in the winter. The top of the wall where the roof should have rested was simply covered with flat slates to protect it from the rain. Good morning, Combs, I said. He turned up a wizened, humorous old face, the very type of a grave digger's, and with one hand leaning on the edge of the green mound upon which he had been cropping with a pair of shears the too long and too thin grass, touched his cap with the other, and bade me a cheerful good morning in return. "'You're making things tidy,' I said. "'It takes time to make them all comfortable, you see, sir,' he returned, taking up his shears again and clipping away at the top and sides of the mound. "'You mean the dead, Combs?' "'Yes, sir, to be sure, sir. "'You don't think it makes much difference to their comfort, do you?' whether the grass is one length or another upon their graves? Well, no, sir. I don't suppose it makes much difference to them. But it looks more comfortable, you know, and I like things to look comfortable, don't you, sir? To be sure I do, Combs, and you are quite right. The resting place of the body, although the person it belonged to be far away, should be respected. That's what I think, though I don't get no credit for it. I do believe the people hereabouts think me only a single hair better than Jack Ketch. But I'm sure I do my best to make the poor things comfortable. He seemed unable to rid his mind of the idea that the comfort of the departed was dependent upon his ministrations. The trouble I have with them sometimes... There's now this same one as lies here, old Jonathan Giles. He have the gout so bad, and just as I come within a couple of inches of the right depth, out comes the edge of a great stone in the near corner at the foot of the bed. Thinks I, he'll never lie it comfortable with that same under his gouty toe. But the trouble I had to get out that stone, I do assure you, sir, it took me nigh half a day. "'but this one be one of the nicest places to lie in "'all up and down the coast. "'A nice gravely soil, you see, sir, "'dry and warm and comfortable. "'Them poor things as comes out of the sea "'must quite enjoy the change, sir.' "'There was something grotesque in the man's persistence "'in regarding the objects of his interest "'from this point of view.' It was a curious way for the humanity that was in him to find expression. But I did not like to let him go on thus. It was so much opposed to all that I believed and felt about the change from this world to the next. But Combs, I said, why would you go on talking as if it made an atom of difference to the dead bodies where they were buried? They care no more about it than your old coat would care where it was thrown after you had done with it. He turned and regarded his coat where it hung beside him on the headstone of the same grave at which he was working, shook his head with a smile that seemed to hint a doubt whether the said old coat would be altogether so indifferent to its treatment when it was past use as I had implied. Then he turned again to his work, 
and after a moment's silence began to approach me from another side. I confess he had the better of me before I was aware of what he was about. The church of Boss Castle stands high on the cliff. You've been to Boss Castle, sir. I told him I had not yet, but hoped to go before the summer was over. Ah, you should see Boss Castle, sir. It's a wonderful place. That's where I was born, sir. When I was a boy, that church was haunted, sir. It's a damp place, and the wind in it awful. I do believe it stand higher than any church in the country, and have got more wind in it of a stormy night than any church whatsomever. Well, they said it was haunted, and sure enough every now and then there was a knocking heard down below, and this always took place of a stormy night, as if there was some poor thing down in the low vaults, and he wasn't comfortable and wanted to get out. Well, one night it was so plain and so fearful, it was that the sectant he went and took the blacksmith and a ship's carpenter down to the harbor, and they go up together, and they hearkened all over the floor, and they opened one of the old family vaults that belongs to the Penhaligans, and they go down with a light. Now the wind, it was a-blowing all as usual, only worse than common, and there to be sure what do they see but the vault half full of sea-water, and nows and thens a great spout coming in through a hole in the rock, for it was high water and the wind off the sea, as I tell you. And there was a coffin afloat on the water, and every time the spout come through, it set it knocking again the side of the vault, and that was the ghost. What a horrible idea, I said, with a half-shudder at the unrest of the dead. The old man uttered a queer, long-drawn sound, neither a chuckle, a crow, nor a laugh, but a mixture of all three, and turned himself yet again to the work which, as he approached the end of his narration, he had suspended that he might make his story tell, I suppose, by looking me in the face. And as he turned, he said, I thought you would like to be comfortable then, as well as other people, sir. I could not help laughing to see how the cunning old fellow had caught me. I have not yet been able to find out how much of truth there was in his story. From the twinkle of his eye I cannot help suspecting that if he did not invent the tale, he embellished it, at least in order to produce the effect which he certainly did produce. Humor was clearly his predominant disposition, the reflex of which was to be seen, after a mild lunar fashion, on the countenance of his wife. Neither could I help thinking with pleasure, as I turned away, how the merry little old man would enjoy telling his companions how he had posed the new parson. Very welcome was he to his laugh for my part. Yet I gladly left the churchyard, with its sunshine above and its darkness below. Indeed, I had to look up to the glittering veins on the four pinnacles of the church tower, dwelling aloft in the clean sunny air, to get the feeling of the dark vault and the floating coffin and the knocking herd in the windy church out of my brain. 
but the thing that did free me was the reflection with what supreme disregard the disincarcerated spirit would look upon any possible vicissitudes of its abandoned vault for in proportion as the body of man's revelation ceases to be in harmony with the spirit that dwells therein it becomes a vault a prison from which it must be freedom to escape at length the house we like best would be a prison of awful sorts if doors and windows were built up man's abode as age begins to draw nigh fares thus age is in fact the mason that builds up the doors and the windows and death is the angel that breaks the prison house and lets the captives free thus i got something out of the sexton's horrible story but before the week was over death came near indeed in far other fashion than any funeral tale could have brought it one day after lunch i had retired to my study and was dozing in my chair for the day was hot when i was waked by charlie running into the room with the cry papa papa there's a man drowning i started up and hurried down to the drawing-room which looked up over the bay i could see nothing but people running about on the edge of the quiet waves no sign of human being was on the water but the one boat belonging to the pilot was coming out from the shelter of the lock of the canal where it usually lay and my friend of the coast guard was running down from the tower on the cliff with ropes in his hand he would not stop the boat even for the moment it would need to take him on board but threw them in and urged to haste i stood at the window and watched every now and then i fancied i saw something white heave up on the swell of a wave and as often was satisfied that i had but fancied it the boat seemed to be floating about lazily if not idly the eagerness to help made it appear as if nothing was going on could it after all have been a false alarm was there after all no insensible form swinging about in the sweep of those waves with life gradually oozing away long long as it seemed to me i watched and still the boat kept moving from place to place so far out that i could see nothing distinctly of the motion of its crew at length i saw something yes a long white thing rose from the water slowly and was drawn into the boat it rowed swiftly to the shore there was but one place fit to land upon a little patch of sand nearly covered at high water but now lying yellow in the sun under the window at which i stood and immediately under our garden wall thither the boat shot along and there my friend of the coast guard earnest and sad was waiting to use though without hope every appliance so well known to him from the frequent occurrence of such necessity in the course of his watchful duties along miles and miles of stormy coast i will not linger over the sad details of vain endeavour the honoured head of a family he had departed and left a good name behind him 
but even in the midst of my poor attentions to the quiet speechless pale-faced wife who sat at the head of the corpse i could not help feeling anxious about the effect on my connie it was impossible to keep the matter concealed from her the undoubted concern on the faces of the two boys was enough to reveal that something serious and painful had occurred while my wife and winnie and indeed the whole household were busy in attending to every remotest suggestion of aid that reached them from the little crowd gathered about the body at length it was concluded on the verdict of the medical man who had been sent for that all further effort was useless the body was borne away and i led the poor lady to her lodging and remained there with her till i found that as she lay on the sofa the sleep that so often dogs the steps of sorrow had at length thrown its veil over her consciousness and put her for the time to rest there is a gentle consolation in the firmness of the grasp of the inevitable known but to those who are led through the valley of the shadow i left her with her son and daughter and returned to my own family they too were of course in the skirts of the cloud had they only heard of the occurrence it would have had little effect but death had appeared to them everyone but connie had seen the dead lying there and before the day was over i wished that she too had seen the dead for i found from what she said at intervals and from the shudder that now and then passed through her that her imagination was at work showing but the horrors that belong to death for the enfolding peace that accompanies it can be known but by the sight of the dead when i spoke to her she seemed and i suppose for the time felt tolerably quiet and comfortable but i could see that the words she had heard fall in the going and coming and the communications of charlie and harry to each other had made as it were an excoriation on her fancy to which her consciousness was ever returning and now i became more grateful than i had yet been for the gift of that gypsy child for i felt no anxiety about connie so long as she was with her the presence even of her mother could not relieve her for she and winnie were both clouded with the same awe and its reflex in connie was distorted by her fancy but the sweet ignorance of the baby which rightly considered is more than a type or symbol of faith operated most healingly for she appeared in her sweet merry ways no baby was ever more filled with the mere gladness of life than connie's baby to the mood in which they all were like a sunny window in a cathedral crept telling of a whole universe of sunshine and motion beyond those oppressed pillars and low-groined arches and why should not the baby know best i believe the babies do know best i therefore favoured her having a child more than i might otherwise have thought good for her being anxious to get the dreary unhealthy impression healed as soon as possible lest it should in the delicate physical condition in which she was turn to a sore but my wife suffered for a time nearly as much as connie 
as long as she was going about the house or attending to the wants of her family she was free but no sooner did she lay her head on the pillow than in rushed the cry of the sea fierce unkind craving like a wild beast again and again she spoke of it to me for it came to her mingled with the voice of the tempter saying cruel chance over and over again for although the two words contradict each other when put together thus each in its turn would assert itself a great part of the doubt in the world comes from the fact that there are in it so many more of the impressible as compared with the originating minds where the openness to impression is balanced by the power of production the painful questions of the world are speedily met by their answers where such is not the case they are often long periods of suffering till the child answer of truth is brought to the birth hence the need for every impressible mind to be by reading or speech held in living association with the original mind able to combat those suggestions of doubt and even unbelief which the look of things must often occasion a look which comes from our inability to gain other than fragmentary visions of the work that the father worketh hitherto when the kingdom of heaven is at hand one sign thereof will be that all clergymen will be more or less of the latter sort and mere receptive goodness no more than the education and moral character will be considered sufficient reason for a man occupying the high position of the instructor of his fellows but even now this possession of original power is not by any means to be limited to those who make public show of the same in many a humble parish priest it shows itself at the bedside of the suffering or in the admonition of the closet although as yet there are many of the clergy who so far from being able to console wisely are incapable of understanding the condition of those that need consolation it's all a fancy my dear i said to her there is nothing more terrible in this than in any other death on the contrary i can hardly imagine a less fearful one a big wave falls on the man's head and stuns him and without further suffering he floats gently out on the sea of the unknown but it is so terrible for those left behind had you seen the face of his widow so gentle so loving so resigned in its pallor you would not have thought it so terrible but though she always seemed satisfied and no doubt felt nearly so after any conversation of the sort yet every night she would call out once and again oh that sea out there i was very glad indeed when mr turner who had arranged to spend a short holiday with us arrived he was concerned at the news i gave him of the shock both connie and her mother had received and counselled an immediate change that time might in the absence of surrounding associations obliterate something of the impression that had been made the consequence was that we resolved to remove our household 
for a short time to some place not too far off to permit of my attending to my duties at kilkhaven but out of sight and the sound of the sea it was thursday when mr turner arrived and he spent the next two days in inquiring and looking about for a suitable spot to which we might repair as early in the week as possible on the saturday the blacksmith was busy in the church tower and i went in to see how he was getting on you had a sad business here the last week sir he said after we had done talking about the repairs a very sad business indeed i answered it was a warning to us all he said we may well take it so i returned but it seems to me that we are too ready to think of such remarkable things only by themselves instead of being roused by them to regard everything common and uncommon as ordered by the same care and wisdom one of our local preachers made a grand use of it i made no reply he resumed they tell me you took no notice of it last Sunday, sir. I made no immediate allusion to it, certainly, but I preached under the influence of it, and I thought it better that those who could reflect on the matter should be thus led to think for themselves than that they should be subjected to the reception of my thoughts and feelings about it. For in the main it is life and not death that we have to preach." I don't quite understand you, sir, but then you don't care much for preaching in your church. I confess, I answered, that there has been much indifference on that point. I could, however, mention to you many and grand exceptions. Still there is, even in some of the best in the church, a great amount of disbelief in the efficacy of preaching, and I allow that a great deal of what is called preaching partakes of its nature only in the remotest degree but while i hold a strong opinion of its value that is where it is genuine i venture just to suggest that the nature of the preaching to which the body you belong to has resorted has had something to do by way of a reaction in driving the church to the other extreme how do you mean that sir you try to work upon people's feelings without reference to their judgment. Anyone who can preach what you call rousing sermons is considered a grand preacher amongst you, and there is a great danger of his being led thereby to talk more nonsense than sense, and then when the excitement goes off there is no seed left in the soil to grow in peace, and they are always craving after more excitement." well there is the preacher to rouse them up again and the consequence is that they continue like children the good ones i mean and have hardly a chance of making a calm deliberate choice of that which is good while those who have been only excited and nothing more are hardened and seared by the reoccurrence of such feelings as is neither aroused by truth nor followed by action you daren't talk like that if you knew the kind of people in this country that the methodists as you call them have got hold of they tell me it was like hell itself down in those mines before wellesley came among them 
I should be a fool or a bigot to doubt that the Wesleyans have done incalculable good in the country, and that not alone to the people who never went to church. The whole Church of England is under obligation to Methodicism, such as no words can overstate. I wonder you can say such things against them then. Now there you show the evil of thinking too much about the party you belong to. It makes a man touchy, and then he fancies when another is merely, it may be, analyzing a difference, or insisting strongly on some great truth that he is talking against his party. But you said, sir, that our clergy don't care about moving our judgments, only our feelings. Now I know preachers amongst us of whom that would be anything but true. Of course there must be, but there is what I say. Your party feelings make you touchy. A man can't always be saying in the press of utterance. Of course there are exceptions. That is understood. I confess I do not know much about your clergy, for I have not had the opportunity. But I do know this that some of the best and most liberal people I have ever known have belonged to your community. They do gather a deal of money for good purposes. Yes, but that is not what I meant by liberal. It is far easier to give money than to be generous in judgment. I meant by liberal, able to see the good and true in people that differ from you glad to be roused to the reception of truth in God's name from whatever quarter it may come, and not readily finding offense where the remark may have chanced to be too sweeping or unguarded. But I see that I ought to be more careful, for I have made you, who certainly are not one of the quarrelsome people I have been speaking of, misunderstand me. I beg your pardon, sir. I was hasty but I do think I am more ready to lose my temper since. Here he stopped. A fit of coughing came on, and, to my concern, was followed by what I saw plainly could be the result only of a rupture in the lungs. I insisted on his dropping his work and coming home with me, where I made him rest the remainder of the day and all Sunday, sending word to his mother that I could not let him go home. When we left on the Monday morning, we took him with us in the carriage hired for the journey, and set him down at his mother's, apparently no worse than usual. End of chapter 6